Michael Dobson is the current director of the Shakespeare Institute here in Stratford-upon-Avon. And um, this is the thing that most surprised me about what the Institute does, is that you can also hire it out for weddings and bar mitzvahs. <laughs> it's a beautiful building. Um, it's right opposite the registry office. I mean, the university, don't tell the university, but they could make much more money out of us if they just rented us out as a wedding venue. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 568, The Shakespeare Institute. While I was in Stratford-upon-Avon for the book launch event for Pop-Up Shakespeare last month at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, I also had the great privilege and enormous fun of speaking with Michael Dobson, the director of the Shakespeare Institute, which has an amazing history and, and a variety of courses of study available to the serious Shakespeare scholar. Michael was gracious enough to tell me about all of these programs, but he began by telling me that speaking with me was not the most exciting thing he had going on that week. I blush to confess that uh, the building will be used for a private party tomorrow. It's, it's, you know, it's my 30th wedding anniversary, so, so uh, people will be gathering from around the world to relive the horror of... Uh, uh, that party all, the, all those years ago. And to toast the survivors. Yes, indeed. And toast each other, you know, with, right. with sort of thinly disguised relief or, or whatever else may happen. Well, w well, when it's not hosting private functions, yeah. what yes. is the Shakespeare Institute's <laughs> major function? The Institute was set up in 1951 to be the world's first specialist university department focused on Shakespeare. Uh, it's a research laboratory, if you like. It's got a small team of professors and lecturers and a large community of research students all working in Stratford on Shakespeare. It's got its own wonderful hand-chosen library of 60,000 items and it has throughout its existence served as the kind of academic fallback or assistant for the Royal Shakespeare Company. Or in fact, of course, for the Royal Shakespeare Theatre before that, since the Institute was here before the, the old Memorial Theatre rebranded itself as the RSC in 1961. So we've had very close relations with the theatres of Stratford throughout the Institute's existence. Undergraduates from the University of Birmingham come down and get doses of live Shakespeare and Shakespearean scholarship every year and every term, and, and we've now got this actual formal collaboration deal with the RSC by which our students are in their spaces and they're in with us and, and uh, our students can be sort of um, guinea pig audiences for research and development projects and, and uh, we have a lot of, lot of fun together. In fact, um, you know, some institute students have been appearing as extras in a number of RSC shows this season. I mean, if you want a revolting mob, I mean, you know, get some Shakespeare Institute master's students in. They do a lovely job in Julius Caesar. <laughs> um, well, and may I say, what a masterstroke of genius it was to 
decide to um, um, place the Shakespeare Institute here in Stratford-Bon-Avon, yes. rather than, say, Croydon. Yeah, yeah. It was a very cunning selling plan, really. Yeah. Uh, and they got this lovely building. Uh, th- this was the home of a mad Edwardian best-selling novelist called Marie Corelli, who was a spiritualist and celebrity and enormously rich from book sales, which, you know, isn't easy to do, in my experience. Uh, and she was very keen on Stratford. Uh, she wanted to live in Stratford permanently, and she campaigned for the restoration of Elizabethan buildings, sort of in her spare time. And people came and visited her here. She was a friend of Ellen Terry, so Ellen Terry was here. She was so famous that Sarah Bernhardt dropped in. Mark Twain came and visited her. Uh, so, and and uh, a very very young Laurence Olivier, when he was here with a school production of Taming of the Shrew, in which he was playing Kate, had tea in the front room downstairs. So it had connections with uh, Stratford's Shakespearean business uh, before it became the Institute. Um, After Marie Corelli's death, it was bought by the British Council, and it was the British Council's kind of Stratford base to show visiting dignitaries and to run little summer courses on Shakespeare with the theatre. And these survive. Uh, The RSE Summer School predates the actual institute. We had our 70th RSC summer school in the building this summer with Janet Suzman and Michael Billington and many of the same people who've been coming every year for the last 70 years. Well, and and I was going to say, well, you... you, uh, there's so much here in Stratford, yeah. ground zero in terms of Shakespeare yeah. scholarship, and 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 how you're different is is because you're housing students. I mean, yeah. this is a real university thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we train doctoral students here. You know, the the stuff that's <clears throat> in the archive at the birthplace, the stuff that we've got, the physical traces of Shakespeare's life are, are what these students are trained on. Yeah. Uh, you know, they get to decipher Shakespeare's will while they're learning to do Elizabethan handwriting, you know, which is no bad thing. And and what is your background? I mean, we, I'm here in your lushly appointed office, and I see a, and I see a photo of a man that looks suspiciously like you, although he's wearing a very convincing head of hair. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, I'm a failed actor, uh, like so many academics in theatre studies of one kind and another. Um, yeah, I used to dream that one day my picture might be on the wall of uh, the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, and actually at the moment it is. But I look terrible. It's a picture of me giving a prize to Tony Sher, and you know I look like a madhead master and, and you know I, I suppose I should just reconcile myself to these days it's but, a good yeah. niche uh, there's, there's always room in sitcoms you know but uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. but but um no um I did a lot of acting when I was a student I was very keen on Shakespeare my grandfather was an amateur actor he founded co-founded a the Middlesbrough Little Theatre in this northeastern industrial town and played Hamlet's ghost Old Hamlet's ghost in in a production up there. So there's a lot of um, amateur Shakespeare in my background, in my experience. Um, in fact, I wrote a whole scholarly book about amateur Shakespeare, available from all good bookshops uh, and Cambridge University Press directly. Uh, and I'm always happy to autograph copies. <laughs> well uh, plugged. Well, indeed. But I had the great good fortune to well, I won a prize on Shakespeare when I was a student at Oxford. And by happy fluke, when I decided I was going to come back to Oxford and take a doctorate on Shakespeare, Stanley Wells happened to be in Oxford, seconded from the Institute, editing the Oxford edition of Shakespeare. Um, And he became my supervisor. Uh So I was trained by Stanley in Oxford. And I then had even better fortune in that I managed to 
persuade a young woman to marry me who at the time was a visiting scholar at Harvard. So I went over to Harvard um, and, and was a self-appointed visiting scholar at Harvard while I was visiting my finishing the thesis in the Harper Theatre Collection and got to work with Marjorie Garber, who's another great Shakespearean scholar. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've done, sh and we spent a long time in the States. Uh, so I've done Shakespeare in American universities and British universities, and, and indeed in China briefly, uh, and, you know, done visiting gigs all over the place. I would imagine, yeah, even as, even as a scholar, you get to, there is a sense of performance Oh yeah, yeah, but no, I mean, not just in the actual act of teaching, but I mean, there's little legitimately opportunities to get up and do, and do the do the work. Yeah, that's true, and it's one of the things mm -hmm. that we insist on here at the institute. All students at the Shakespeare Institute are automatically members of the Student Drama Society, whether they like it or not. They have to opt out rather than opt in, and there are weekly play readings during every term, where so the students get to speak. You know the as much of the canon of Elizabethan drama as possible, as well as just the, and they put on their own productions as well as you know maybe working as extras at the big theatre right. around the corner. That seems unique to me, but so vital when you're studying Shakespeare. Are you one of the only programs that does this? I think it's the first I've actually heard of it. Um, well, I hope so. Um, I mean, there may be feeble imitators elsewhere. I don't know, uh, but certainly. You know, we study Shakespeare as a playwright. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, obviously we study him as a poet as well, and we study lots of other Elizabethan writers, and, and but the whole range. And, of course, we have the first ever master's course called Shakespeare and Creativity, yeah. in which students actually do practical work and work in other art forms around Shakespeare, as well as doing the core of Shakespearean scholarship. Did you come to Shakespeare through a love of theatre, or did you come to theatre through a love of Shakespeare? Um, both. I don't yeah. think I don't think I really separate the, those things. Um, certainly, I have very vivid memories of seeing pantomime, which sure. I think is how most British people first get hooked on live theatre, sure. uh, as well as of being taken to see in 1970 this extraordinary, visionary, psychedelic, very peculiar but arresting production of Midsummer Night's Dream which was done by Bournemouth Grammar School for Girls. Uh, I missed Peter Brooks, I'm I was afraid. <laughs> uh, but but um, yeah, and, and very, very powerful memories of the first time I was brought to Stratford on a bus uh, with my grammar school O-level cohort and we were all filed in to see Terry Hand's production of Henry V in 1975, which was just absolutely wonderful. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, I could do with a bit more of this, you know. And, and, and yeah, soon <laughs> so I've eventually got myself into a position where I see everything the RSC does. Luxury. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, I never believed it in the old days. Was there a moment where you said, oh, this is, it's fun to act this, but I really want to delve, as Stoppard yeah. says in Rosegrets of Guildenstern. <laughs> what was that moment, you know? Uh, I think it was the moment when I was cast as an old man for about the fifth time in succession at the age of 22 and thought, perhaps I don't quite have the kind of youthful, flexible grace to get the full range of roles mm -hmm. um, and perhaps actually being an actor is a appallingly worryingly insecure job and I'll leave it to my friends who are really good at it mm -hmm. uh, to, to stick at it and, uh, and do it full time I mean I was delving already the scholarship side of it I'd always really liked yeah. and, and, and uh, I'd always uh, done a lot of but yeah I, I, I gave up the acting once 
once I realised I was only ever likely to play people who got to stand still and recite a lot of exposition, <laughs> like <laughs> and in Comedy of Errors uh, and Friar Lawrence mm, and endless, uh, absolutely. And I, I thought I probably thought I probably had reached the ultimate in that line of parts when I got cast as Time in The Winter's Tale. <laughs> I mean, you can't really go much further in the way of old man parts who just stand there and recite. Hi, I'm Scott Simon of NPR News. You're listening to the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. Fool. Where can you RSC the RSC? Our U.S. fall tour of all the great books abridged, William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged, and the ultimate Christmas show abridged continues next week with performances in Asheville, North Carolina, Maryville, Tennessee, Somerville, New Jersey, San Jose, California, Algona, Iowa, Reston, Virginia, and La Mirada, California. Next winter, we'll perform William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged off-Broadway at the New Victory Theater in New York City. And next June, we'll return to the Pittsburgh Public Theater to close out their season with our production of William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged. And of course, Pop-Up Shakespeare is now on sale worldwide. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for a specific box office venue and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with Michael Dobson, the director of the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-upon-Avon. So, Stanley, Sir, Sir, yeah, yeah. now Stanley Wells, yeah, yeah. Knight of the Realm, yeah. um, supervised your dissertation. Did. Um, what did you? What did you learn anything valuable from him in terms of supervising other oh, dissertations? Continually, um, I wish I were allowed to supervise by university regulations the way Stanley did, because he was just astonishingly patient. He went on believing that I was finally going to write this thing and, uh, and took me out for nice lunches at pubs and, and allowed me to change the subject to gossip about what was happening at the RSC when I clearly hadn't submitted enough work for that really to be worth talking about that mm. particular term. Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't see each other that often. I think I probably saw more of Stanley after I'd moved to Harvard because I was writing much more and he came over for conferences and things. Uh, and in order to eat oysters, because you know, he loves oysters and they're particularly good in New England. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and obviously, I mean, yeah, nobody can live up to the example set by Stanley. He knows everything and he's incredibly generous. Yeah. Um, there and I mean one thing I suppose that I try to do is is spread work around. I mean Stanley was very good at, you know, having editorial sort of little tasks that he needed to do and that maybe he didn't have time for, which he would you know let me have a go. Mm. At. So so he put some work my way, which I was very very grateful for. Well, the community of Shakespeareans, I'm only beginning to get to know. I've known mm. Peter Holland for 25 yeah. years. He was the examiner on my thesis. Was he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first time I met Peter. It's it's amazing. We're we're we've been such good friends since, really. That's <laughs> so. The examination went well. It went extremely well, but mm -hmm. but Peter was very very clear. Yeah. About you know what he hated about the thesis. Uh, as well as what was going to make make him have to pass it. 
Very good. Well, and they were both right. You oh, eventually got yeah. the thing written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, I, yes, that's right. And I rewrote the thing very heavily in the light of the uh, very candid advice I had from Peter during the Viva. And, and uh, it became a book, which, you know, amazingly is still in print. Well, there's a skill right there. How does one write a PhD dissertation in such a way that anybody would want to read it other than another yeah. doctoral student? Yeah. Um, and to some extent, that's not the problem. I mean, there are PhD theses which are purely pure research and which aren't intended to be used by anybody except scholars, which right. compile fairly obscure information in particularly important new ways that other scholars are going to want. And then there are critical projects that you want lots of people to read. Right. And um, you just have to imitate really good models like those provided, for example, by Stanley Wells, Marjorie Garber, Peter Holland, who mm -hmm. write really well. Yeah. Um, and it, it's to be hoped that anybody who enjoys Shakespeare recognises really good writing when, when they see it and, and has a feel for the rhythm of a sentence. It's quite hard to teach, except you show people really good examples and hope they'll gradually sink in and want to emulate those cadences. It's a little like teaching acting. You've either, yeah. got, you've got, either got some native talent that can be honed yeah. And shaped. Yeah, and you've got to trust people to be able to learn from example and learn from experience, learn from trying and failing a few times. And How does one apply to be, to a study here? Does one have to have... It seems... I'm just sitting here thinking, well, I never could have gotten into this place. Well, <laughs> um, it depends what you're applying to do, which of our many glorious programmes you're, you're hoping to take. If you want to do a PhD... Um, if it's a scholarly PhD, then it helps if you've got a very good first degree and ideally a very good master's degree with, with very good marks in it. If you want to take, the, say, the Shakespearean Creativity Masters, then we're open to people with relevant practical experience, relevant artistic experience. Uh, and we've had people from a tremendous range of backgrounds doing really well on that course. And you know, we're hoping that Devon Glover, the sonnet man, the rapper, will get the funding to be able to take the course because you know we've we've offered him a place he's very mm. keen to come uh, and we've had a lot of people who've been actors i mean ian hughes of the rsc took an ma here at the institute um he, he emailed me just yesterday uh, about his current show about edmund Keane in richmond and oh. twickenham if anybody wants to get to see it i'm sure it would be wonderful but yeah if um and and look up look up our website on the you know, on the Birmingham University website, just Google for the Shakespeare Institute and instructions as to how to apply will be passed in front of your keyboard. <coughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Um, what's, what's, what's your, do you have a current um, uh, academic project other than the supervision of other academics? I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, a couple. Uh, one of them is sitting on the coffee table in front of us. Ah. This is the new series of performance editions oh. of Shakespeare that me and Abigail Rokerson Woodall of the Institute and Simon Russell Beale are putting mm. together. These are scholarly editions of Shakespeare, but designed to be used in rehearsal rooms. Oh, fantastic. They are by Arden, the new Arden, Arden, Arden editions. The Arden performance editions of Shakespeare, yeah. uh, where you know, it's a nice size, there's scope to scribble on, and yeah. the notes are all designed uh, to help with scansion, pronunciation, basic comprehension that, that actors need rather than arguments about the provenance of a particular comma, comma or, a, right. yeah, or, or disputed reading. That looks so helpful, yes. Yeah, uh, and the other thing I'm doing is a book about the presence of Shakespeare in the repertories of national theatres around the world, what it is about Shakespeare's plays that, that has made them useful to people who've been putting together 
particular theatre institutions in the light of emerging national identities. So it means that I'm comparing the histories of the National Theatre and the RSC, in particular in this country, with the development of the Comédie Française mm. and uh, the Japanese national theatres and the German national theatres and, and, and so on. Yeah. You know, what, what, why Shakespeare has been so central, why so many national theatres have started with productions of Hamlet, whether in English or in, uh, in other languages. Um, why they all do Julius Caesar at once. You know, this, <laughs> you know, so so it's, it's a way of having research uh, opportunities to pursue at the same time as I'm going around the world lecturing and plugging the Institute. And, and, and returning to sort of your performance origins. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I love seeing Shakespeare done in other languages and in other cu cultures and in other contexts. I'm absolutely fascinated by the different ways into the works there are, the, the things that survive in translation, the, thing that, the things that mutate, the niches Shakespeare occupies in different places. Uh, so I'm very, always uh, very keen to be involved in international Shakespeare festivals. Uh, there's a particularly good one in Romania that I go to every time in Craiova, which is every two years, um, and we're doing the plans for that at the moment. It's, it starts in April and Cheek by Jowl are going and a mm. company from Japan and the Romanian National Theatre, all kinds of wonderful Shakespeare from around the world. I got hooked on that festival in 2010 when they brilliantly put together an entire two-week festival, no, two more, more than two-week festival, consisting entirely of productions of Hamlet mm. uh, from all around the world. Mm. And it was a totally different show every night. It was just a revelation. I had such a good time. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. There were so many threads of my conversation with Michael that I wanted to pick at, so I did ask him one final question, which you'll hear in a moment. But for now, send us your academic focus via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also engage with us and other fans on Facebook or Twitter. You can find easy links to all these social networks at our website, reducedshakespeare.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Austin Titchener, and the Shakespeare Institute's on Twitter, too, at Shakes Institute. Thanks, as always, to failed actor and academic Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and GarageBand. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Kate Doyen. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Scott Simon, not only for appearing on this week's episode, but for interviewing me and Reed Martin about pop-up Shakespeare on National Public Radio's Weekend Edition. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 568-1704ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Is there a point at which it stops becoming Shakespeare if it's no longer in English? Um, I don't think so, because okay. I mean, there's a, there's a point at which it's no longer Shakespeare if it is in English, if you start, <laughs> think, if you start thinking like that. I mean, the words, yes. the words already don't mean what they meant in 1595. They're already in a totally different context. They didn't anticipate. Some of them just pass by audiences who don't understand them. You know, it's, it, the stuff's mutating anyway, just as it's now being performed in theatres with electric light and intervals and Good all sorts. Yeah, quite, yeah. all sorts of things that... Yeah that make the, make the experience change shape and make it change meaning. Um, yeah, a modern director can make Shakespeare mean something utterly alien in English without changing the words <laughs> into a different language if they really put a lot of effort into it. 
This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. So much less. So much less. So much less.